0: Listen to more episodes of this podcast earlier than everybody else and add free when you sign up for Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service that's audience-supported featuring more than 130 top-tier educational creators focusing on making content for you and not for an algorithm. Sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv conversationswithjoe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. Hey there and welcome to the Answers with Joe podcast where today I am sharing the audio of this week's video on the thorium reactors, the liquid fluoride thorium reactors, which is a very difficult thing to say over and over again. It's kind of like toy boat. This was a a beast of a video to get out. I'll be honest, it's a subject I don't know much about. Uh, There's a lot of conflicting information out there about it and it's a very polarizing topic and its supporters have a tendency to get a little uh, bombastic and utopian about it in my opinion. Uh, I'm positive in the technology. I, I hope that some people take the reins and really give it a try because I think it's always worth a try and uh, you know we need to be examining every option we have right now. I hope this is easy to follow in audio form. I, <laughs> I went to great links to get some visuals in the video that help explain this nuclear science I'm talking about. Uh, I know I'm a very visual learner myself so I was wanting to use that as much as possible so if you get lost during just listening to this my apologies. Uh, it would probably make a little more sense if you're watching the video. Of course, you can go watch that video on my YouTube channel if you want to check that out. Uh, there was a lot of stuff I didn't really get to cover, even though it's a super long video. Hopefully, I can get an interview with a thorium expert soon and put that up here on the podcast. I think that'd be really cool. Uh, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this podcast. But first, oh, let me guess another Canker Boy ad. Well, if you're tired of hearing me talk about it, I'll let one of my Canker Boy members tell you how they feel about it. Here's what Ed had to say um, I started having a problem with canker sores probably in my 40s and uh, sometimes it would get so bad I just didn't even wanna eat and happened to be looking doing some research ran across uh, the canker boy video said I would give it a try within two weeks of using the canker boy my canker sore problem was gone so long as uh canker boy's on the market i'll be a canker boy customer and it's just one of over a thousand people who have had their lives changed by the supplement and i'm one of them that's why i talk about it so much because it's literally changed people's lives and i want to pass that on to others so if this is a problem for you or anybody you know head over to CankerBoy.com and give it a try if it doesn't work you'll get your money back so you've got nothing to lose and with that here's today's episode enjoy Let's set the scene. It's May of 1986, and much like Homer Simpson, you work at a nuclear power plant. A nuclear power plant that just melted down. An out-of-control reaction overheated the cooling tanks, causing the water inside to evaporate, expand, and explode, destroying all of the water pumps that send the coolant to the other reactor cores, sending those into overdrive and melting down as well. The reactors basically turn into a 5,000 degree molten mass of steel, concrete, and enriched uranium, and firefighters arrive dousing the building trying to put it all out and stabilize it, which they succeed in doing but they all die within hours. Every town in a 500 kilometer radius is evacuated due to toxic levels of radiation from the blast. Hospitals are completely overrun with patients so much so that they actually decide to just reclassify what is considered a treatable amount of radiation and just send people home to die. So you're doing everything you can to help when authorities come to you and say that they're looking for volunteers. Because it turns out that all the water that the firemen had doused the building with is now leaked down into the basement level and that giant, massive radioactive goo that's as hot as the center of the Earth is melting through the floor above it. If that goo manages to get down into the flooded basement, the steam explosion that would come out of that would be large enough to contaminate several nearby countries. The basement needs to be drained. And the only way to do that is to turn a valve in the basement. Volunteering means almost certain death. But not doing it means millions of people could die. Do you do it? The event I'm describing is, of course, the Chernobyl disaster. And believe it or not, three men actually volunteered to do that. They threw on wetsuits, they walked through waist-high water and pitch-black tunnels, and avoided an unimaginable disaster. Chernobyl is the poster child for the dangers of nuclear power. But despite that and other events like the Fukushima event, nuclear power is actually considered pretty safe. But what if there was something even safer and cleaner It's also cheaper and more efficient? Turns out there is. Almighty Arjun, Justin Carmona, Sean Seggast, Ian Prado, Caleb Robinson, and many more asked for a video on liquid fluoride thorium reactors. I did a series of videos a while back on renewable energy solutions, and a lot of people felt that I should have included nuclear in that. But I didn't because nuclear fuel still has to be dug out of the ground and enriched and all that kind of stuff. But nuclear energy is still considered to be clean energy because though it does produce waste, it's contained waste. It's not vented into the atmosphere or piped into the ocean or anything. At least, (laughs) gotta hope not. We're reaching a bit of a crisis point right now because... We seriously need to reduce our carbon emissions if we're going to avoid the worst effects of climate change over the next hundred years, but at the same time, our global energy use is increasing, mostly due to developing nations that are becoming electrified. This is a trend that will continue. So although there are some issues with nuclear energy, this is one of those things that we can't just shove aside. We need to be examining every single resource we have available to us right now. And this isn't something we can just wait for AI to solve because, well, we know what they're going to do. Let's start off by looking at the kind of nuclear energy we've been doing so far so that we have a good starting point. Traditional reactors use uranium as fuel. Uranium is one of the heaviest elements on the periodic table with 92 protons and it occurs naturally in the earth in the form of two different isotopes, uranium-238 and uranium-235. Isotopes are different variations of an element that contain the same number of protons but a different number of neutrons. Hydrogen, for example, has one proton, but its isotope deuterium has a proton and a neutron. And tritium has one proton and two neutrons. Deux, trois. Uranium-238 and 235 correspond to the combined number of protons and neutrons in the nucleus. The 238 has 146 neutrons, for example, which means the 235 has, of course, 143. Nailed it. This means uranium-235 has fewer neutrons to hold the nucleus together, which means it's more easily split if it's hit by a radioactive particle. When the nucleus is split, it gives off heat and flings out a few stray neutrons in the process. If those neutrons hit other atoms of uranium-235, it can cause them to split, which fling off more neutrons, which can cause more atoms to split, causing a chain reaction. This is known as nuclear fission, and it produces a lot of heat from a tiny amount of material. In nuclear bombs, this heat is used to melt cities. In a nuclear reactor, it's used to boil water and create steam, which turns a turbine and creates electricity. In order to do this, natural uranium has to be refined into uranium fuel, and the way they do this is they mine the ore, then they dissolve the uranium out of the ore using acid. This creates a uranium oxide concentrate called yellow cake. They then take this and convert it into a gas called uranium hexafluoride, and from there it's enriched. In nature, only 0.7% of uranium is the uranium-235. After enrichment, it can get it up to 5%. After enrichment, this is converted into uranium dioxide, which is formed into uranium fuel pellets. Fuel pellets are inserted into rods, which help absorb stray neutrons, and then that's put into a moderator, which absorbs more of the stray neutrons. All of this is meant to cool the reaction and keep it from going out of control. So while the stray neutrons split the uranium-235, it's actually absorbed by uranium-238, which turns it into uranium-239. Atoms that are split by a neutron are called fissile, and atoms that absorb neutrons are called fertile. So the uranium-235 is basically impregnating the 238 in this hot, radioactive orgy, ew. This uranium-239 quickly decays into neptunium-239, which then decays into plutonium-239, and that's when it runs out of planets to turn into. This is known as the uranium-plutonium cycle, or the UPU cycle. Once the uranium-235 gets down to around 0.3%, that's considered spent fuel, and what's left over is a radioactive stew of high massed isotopes called transuranic isotopes, that have to be carefully housed for at least 10,000 years. Or used to melt cities. Potato-potato. Actually no, potato, because all of this science was figured out during World War II, and at the time they were more interested in melting cities, which is why they focused more on uranium and not on another possible fuel source... Thorium! Thorium sits two squares over from uranium on the periodic table with 90 protons, and it's considered a weakly radioactive metal. And yes, it was named after Thor, the Norse god of thunder. Thorium is a fairly abundant material, there's four times more of it in the earth's crust than there is uranium, and all the very trace elements of it are the isotope thorium-232. Thorium is stable and non-fissile, which means you can put as much of it together as you want and it won't spontaneously burn on you. That's good. But thorium is fertile, which means if you bombard it with neutrons, it will absorb a neutron and create thorium-233. 233. Thorium-233 233 is not as stable as 232, and it quickly decays into protactinium-233, which then decays down into uranium-233. 233. Uranium-233 233 behaves a lot like 235 in that it's highly fissile. In fact, it's actually more efficient than 235. 233 burns off at 91%, 235 burns off at 85%. From here, you can separate out the uranium-233 into a pure, 233 concentrate and then use that in a reactor just like you would normal uranium-235. The difference is you don't have the 238 in there to absorb and turn into plutonium and all these other nasty things. And the end result is a spent fuel with a half-life of 300 years instead of 10,000 years. Now all that explains the physics of the fuel cycle and why it does what it does but that's only half the story. The rest of it is in the engineering. How do we take these fuel cycles and use that to create electricity? Well, the simplest answer is we use that heat to boil off water, and then the pressurized steam is used to turn a turbine, which turns a generator, which creates electricity. And there have been literally dozens of different configurations of this over the years that increase the efficiency and safety of this whole thing. Uh, Way too many to talk about here, but I'm going to focus and break down the most popular one, which is the pressurized water reactor, or PWR reactor, which looks like the word power. Of course. In a pressurized water reactor a highly pressurized loop of water is circulated around the reactor core. This serves both as a moderator and a coolant but it also is pressurized so that it can absorb more heat without boiling. This loop passes through a steam generator tank, which is part of a second closed loop. The heat from that first loop boils off the water in the steam generator tank, which creates steam, which turns the turbines and does all that kind of stuff. The now cooler pressurized water is pumped back into the reactor core where it cools off the reaction, but also, absorbs more heat and starts the process all over again and the steam is recondensed down into water and then pumped into the steam generator tank. Now of course this relies on a constant flow of water to keep the reactor from getting too hot and melting down which is what happened in Fukushima when the tsunami knocked out several of its backup power generators. Now to clarify, Fukushima was not a pressurized water reactor, it was actually a boiling water reactor which skips the whole closed loop thing and just uses the reactor to boil off the water to turn it into steam but it's the same idea. Now with thorium you don't have to worry about the reactor overheating because the whole thing, the whole fuel cycle revolves around being bombarded with neutrons to begin with, so if you cut off the flow of neutrons then you stop the whole process. So a pretty brilliant solution is to take the thorium and the uranium and dissolve them into a salt compound with a freeze plug at the bottom of the reactor. That way if it gets too hot the freeze plug melts and all of that drains out, taking it away from the source of the neutrons and automatically shutting everything down. And this is known as a liquid fluoride thermium reactor, or LFTR, Lifter. You probably thought I wasn't going to get there. I got there. Lifter is a type of molten salt reactor, which is a very promising technology that there's been a lot of talk about, some of it pretty bombastic, so let's just break down the pros and cons here. First of all, they're incredibly efficient. Uranium reactors only actually burn about 1% of the fuel. But because the fuel in the lifter reactor is liquid, you can actually process the fuel while it's in use, which means you can take out the fissile products that could be absorbing stray neutrons. This way all the neutrons are working to continue the chain reaction. This is called neutron economy. The assemblies of the reactors are much simpler. There's no fuel cells, no rods, no pressurized water. It's basically just a vat. The salt compounds allow it to take in a lot more temperature without it being pressurized. Higher temperatures means more water gets boiled off, more steam, which creates more electricity. And since it's liquid, it can be refueled while operating, so it's less downtime. And the containment is smaller because it's not pressurized. This means you can have smaller, decentralized, modular plants. Now, no system is perfect, including lifters, so let's talk about the cons, which include The corrosive nature of the salt compounds means that there's going to be a lot more material degradation, which means that there's going to be a lot more maintenance that has to be done, especially around the containment vessel. And keep in mind, this is going to have to be done remotely because the containment vessel is going to be highly radioactive. Now, many are saying that you can't make a bomb with a waste product like you can with uranium reactions. And this is true, but the process of making the thorium reaction involves creating uranium-233, which is weapons-grade uranium. Now, obviously, the point of making that 233 is to use it in the reactor, but if a plant owner or a nefarious third party wanted to get a hold of it and make a bomb out of it, they absolutely could. And one last thing, an inevitable byproduct of the thorium-uranium fuel cycle is eventually you're going to create a uranium-232 isotope, which can degrade down to thallium-208, which produces a 2.6 MeV gamma-ray burst. This is very high-energy radiation, which can be hard to shield. So while the eventual end product is not as radioactive, in the interim, it can actually be more radioactive. So even though there are no lifter reactors working today, we do know that it does work, because there was one that was built in the 1960s. It was called the Molten Salt Reactor Experiment. It was carried out at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. It was conceived in 1960. They got it up and online in 1965, and it ran until 1969. All the while, they experimented with it. They tried out different solutions, in the compound, different configurations in the reactor, and they figured out how to make it work. And it did. It worked. So, why didn't it take off? Well, the conspiratorial reason you're gonna see all around the internet is that the United States government wanted to use the uranium process because they could use the waste products from that to make bombs. But the thorium process creates uranium-233, which you can totally use for bombs, so that's not really the case. Now, you can make the argument that the initial research was being done to create an atomic bomb, and all we had at the time was that natural uranium, and uh, that's a perfectly valid point. But I think ultimately, by the time the Oak Ridge boys figured out how to do Lifter, the inertia was already behind uranium, and that's just how it worked out. You know, VHS won over beta. The best solution doesn't always win. But whatever the reason, they did choose to focus on uranium, and in fact, there was a larger version of the Molten Salt Reactor experiment called the Molten Salt Breeder Reactor that was going to be going into production, but the Atomic Energy Commission defunded it. There are, however, some signs of slow progress out there. In Europe, there's a reactor called the Mozart Reactor that they're working on. In Japan, there's one called the Fuji MSR that is a joint effort between the US, Japan, and Russia, but more promising, China actually has gotten involved and they've invested $350 million in a reactor and they've brought in 140 PhDs to work on this with a plan to get it up and running in about 20 years. And you can't talk about liquid fluoride thorium reactors without talking about Kirk Sorensen. He has been a huge advocate of it. He's done TED Talks and he runs a company called Philby Energy, where his goal is to build modular, small, Reactors for uh, government bases, military bases around the world. You can find a lot of his videos on YouTube. He also has a website called energyfromthorium.com. So, with a little luck, maybe in the next decade we'll start to see some of these new reactor concepts coming online things that are much easier, simpler, more efficient, and safer, so that maybe something like Chernobyl will never happen again. Hey, thanks for listening to the Answers with Joe podcast. If you found this through the YouTube channel and you are not subscribed, on iTunes or Google Play, I encourage you to do so. I'm going to be coming back with interviews and repeats of old videos just like this all the time. And if you found this on the podcast player, then uh, know I have a YouTube channel on, uh, well, on YouTube. Just do a little search for Answers with Joe, and you'll find all kinds of fun science and comedy stuff to keep you entertained and thinking about cool stuff for the rest of the week. And you can find this and all my podcasts and all my videos at AnswersWithJoe.com. And if you enjoyed it, a nice review in the iTunes or Google Play store goes a long way. And, of course, word of mouth means everything. So anything you can do to help get the word out, I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. I will catch you next time. Have a good one.